You're listening to Clever Women Co., our podcast where we chat about all things business, career, and entrepreneurship. I'm Em Kaplan, and I'm joined by my business bestie and co-host, Gul Kron. Hello. On this podcast, we ask the big questions so that we can really delve into the brilliant minds of the people you want to hear from. Listen closely because every episode is so different and full of insight. You might just walk away with that one tool you needed to take the next step in your journey. It's the conversations you wouldn't find anywhere else. So let's get into it. On today's show, we chat to Rochelle Unreich, journalist, writer, and recent author of her very own first book titled A Brilliant Life. In her now over 37-year career, Rochelle has written for almost every publication you can think of. She's had regular columns in the Sydney Morning Herald, Harper's Bazaar, The Herald Sun, and Elle magazine, to just name a few. Her work also saw her move over to the US for seven years, covering some of the biggest stories of some of the biggest names. For part of her journalistic career, Rochelle worked as a celebrity profile writer for the likes of Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, Sandra Bullock, Harrison Ford, and Jennifer Aniston, and again, just to name a few. More recently, Rochelle has turned her focus to writing more personal pieces, such as her latest book, A Brilliant Life. It tells the powerful true story of her late mother, a Holocaust survivor, told in Rochelle's words. Rochelle wanted to find out more about how Mira survived four concentration camps, including Auschwitz, as she always thought there was a sort of mystery to her survival. Rochelle's work spans international borders as well as many generations and we feel incredibly privileged to be able to chat to her and share her story with you all. Let's now pass the mic over to Rochelle who will take it from here. Rochelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Emily and Gal. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. We know that you've been quite busy recently with your upcoming book launch. You've been doing a few little different things with different publications to try and start promoting the book, which must be super exciting for you. Yeah, it's so weird to be on the other side of a microphone. Um, Sometimes I find myself a bit distracted when someone asks me a question. I think, oh, that's interesting. And I'm picking up tips from what other people do. Yeah. So it's it's strange. It's like you're banking it up for yourself when you go in and write something exactly. of someone else. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really weird situation. Yeah. Mm. Well, congratulations because this, as we said, is your first book. How was the experience writing that? I mean, it's obviously such a personal piece for you. Yeah, well, I didn't write this book until I was 55. I'm 57 now and it will be published. And I never expected actually that I would necessarily write a book. So when I started it, the experience had a bit of trepidation involved and anxiety. Would I get it right? But it was actually such a joyful experience, even though it was I was dealing with some really difficult subject matter about my mother because she'd passed away, I was looking for a way to keep that connection going mm. with her and to put down all my feelings about her, how much I loved her, about the grief and loss I felt when she'd gone. That was really joyful. Yeah. Mm. And it started out that you started writing the book as a kind of a distraction for your mum when she was, because she did unfortunately have cancer, and it was you kind of used it as well as a distraction for her to get to know her, but then you realised, wow, like there's so much in your story that I would like to share with other people. Yeah, I did. When she was sick, I didn't really know that that would become a book, but my brother suggested I interview her. She was starting to lose a bit of her light. She'd Mm. always been so buoyant and joyful And so I just wanted to get her back to that point. And there was real beauty in that interview because even though she was unwell, 
to sit down and ask a parent about who they are and to really try and understand them. It's something we don't often do. We might try and find out the biography of somebody, but we don't dig deeper. And I I describe it in the book as a kind of a, almost like we went away on a mother-daughter holiday where we had these moments of fierce love and great joy amidst Mm. everything else. Yeah, it's like you get to know your parent in almost like a new light. Well, completely. Like I think there's a psychology in terms of what you pick up that even changes how I look back at my past because sometimes as a child you don't have the whole picture and once you do, you have context. It can change the way you see everything. Mm. Was your mother open about talking about it growing up or was it you finding out a lot of information from the interview years later? So she was open. She wasn't somebody who talked about the Holocaust incessantly and nor was she somebody who refused to speak about it, which can really happen. Um, And she'd given quite a number of testimonies as well, which I'd watched. And when I interviewed her, it actually wasn't even to find out about those things. It was more that I wanted to find out how had she survived and actually thrived afterwards? How had she gone on to be this person who flourished and just saw the world in a positive light. One of the mysteries lay in something she said when she was interviewed by the Holocaust Museum in Melbourne. Uh, She gave a a several hour testimony and she just described a litany of horrors, just the worst of cruelty that she'd witnessed. And at the end of it, the interviewer said, is there anything that you've learned that you wanna add? And she said, in the Holocaust, I learned about the goodness of people. And when I heard that, I felt, how could she say that? How could she have seen man's cruelty and instead focused on something positive? But in fact, I came to understand that so many people helped her of all different races and ethnicities and religions, and they helped her survive. And so she really focused on that. And then I think the other thing I wanted to find out was a little bit of what I call the woo-woo around her. It's just these, you know, you call them, some people call them coincidences, fate, serendipity, what do you call these strange things that happen in your life that you can't really find an explanation for? And I really wanted to find out, was was there a key to her survival in those things that kept happening? So it wasn't just about the Holocaust that I wanted to ask her about. And I really didn't want to write just about that either. Mm. The book really explores her early life in, in Czechoslovakia, in this idyllic little town where everyone just lived a beautiful life. And then after the war, she lived in Paris for 10 years where she really embraced everything that that city had to offer, its fashion, its culture. She would be a fit model for some of the designers and she would often be able to buy clothes after the season. So she had this elaborate wardrobe of clothes and she was a teenager after the war. She was liberated when she was 18. She lost her entire youth in the war from 12 to 18. Mm. So she really made up for lost time afterwards. And then in Australia, and I think this would appeal to both of you because it's what your whole podcast is about, she became an incredibly formidable, dynamic, independent woman and a businesswoman. So she was ahead of her time in a lot of ways. It's a good initial intro for our listeners of your book that is out on November 1st. So we will talk about that a little bit later in this episode, but we'll kind of, yeah, dive right into the first question. Rochelle, something we really love asking all of our guests is what you're reading, listening to, or watching right now. 
At the moment, I'm reading a book called A Lover's Dictionary by David Levithan. And it's a book that's set out under dictionary headings of words. So the story of these two lovers plays out in these tiny little snippets. And I just love discovering books that no one else has found. Mm. And that's always a guilty pleasure. And same with my TV. The TV I watch is uh, often reality TV. I mm. love an unscripted show. So I love Southern Charm. I love Vanderpump Rules. <laughs> I'm one of those people. But so I, I love also getting into a really big show, which I feel like I haven't for a while, like the kind mm. of Game of Thrones type model. It's interesting that you like reading books that no one really knows about. Like I personally like reading books that are in the know at the time because then I can kind of see what the commentary is on it or I can chat to my friends about it. But you're like the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, that's that's true. I never thought of it that way. But I think I like not listening to what other people think because books and everything really, podcasts, TV shows, it's so subjective and you can really miss out on something mm -hmm. by listening to everyone else. There are so many books that are polarizing and, and unfairly so. Yeah. Mm. Like it doesn't mean that a book that is necessarily trending is the best book. It's just trending. And then there's all this hidden gem in all the other books. Rochelle, we'll take it back a little bit to the beginning. What was your life like growing up? I feel like I had one of those really idyllic Australian childhoods before the internet, before phones. I'd ride my bike around the block. We had a horse with a cart and milk bottles come delivered to our door. So it does feel very old fashioned. But one thing that really was part of my childhood was books. My brother was a book publisher. He's 19 years older than me. So I was really young when he started to bring home these manuscripts. When I first realized that, wow, these bits of paper typed on, on pages can actually become a bound book one day. And I think that really planted the seeds. Mm. He used to uh, go to the Frankfurt Book Fair once a year and come home occasionally with signed copies of books. And I would be, I couldn't believe it. Like I'd think that author has written Dear Rochelle on my book. Like at some point that famous author knew that I existed. But I, had a, I was really close with my family. My siblings are all much older than me. I'm from my mother's second marriage. So I, was, I had the advantage of being almost an only child and then the advantage of having older brother and sisters who did stuff for me and took me around places and taught me stuff. Mm. And do you have maybe a personal achievement from the early years of your life that you're really proud of or that really stands out? I think... Any time anyone did recognise my writing, and I know this is going back to the same theme, but uh, that was really, that felt really good. Like if I had an English essay read out in class, I always felt great about that. Certainly by the time I was 20 and I got published, that felt amazing. But any time somebody recognises you, I think mm. feels good. I still remember when a philosophy professor at university called me and said I had done a really good essay on what I considered doing honours. And even though I didn't love, I didn't want to pursue a career in philosophy, I just felt so gladdened that I had done something well. I'd applied myself and done something well. Mm. I feel like that's a really big thing when like a professor picks you out and says, you should do this because I read this piece of work and it was amazing. Like I, I haven't heard that from anyone before. 
Well, that was a one-off. <laughs> <laughs> still, so, yeah, still a big achievement. No, well, I, you know, it did stand out. And I think the same, that still worked. I still remember every editor at the beginning especially that said, that piece was great. And, and some people were more effusive than others. I had one editor, um, he won't mind me saying him, Toby Creswell from Rolling Stone, who is, who is a man of few words. And I remember calling him up and saying, how was the piece, Toby? And he went, it was good. It was really good. Mm-hmm. And I knew that was incredible praise from yeah. Toby Creswell. So I was thrilled with that. Well, in writing all together, what is kind of your earliest memory of either writing itself or realizing that you love to write and read and all that? I always loved to read. My mother would bribe me with with the thought of having books. And when I went to bed, my refrain was one more chapter. She always joked about it when I was really little. I remember writing a book when I was about eight and I think I got to page 20 and gave up. It was called Sarah. And I remember also probably at the age of six, I used to send in riddles to the Sunday papers and they would publish it with your name. And I felt quite thrilled. That's when you know. My name. But I never, funnily enough, I never actually had ambitions to be a writer because I felt like I wasn't exposed to, I didn't necessarily think I could write a book and look, it took me this long. And I also didn't really understand the world of journalism. I only saw it as a young person through newspapers and I couldn't imagine myself then being a reporter. So I had written that off as a career and that's why I applied to study law. I I studied arts law at Monash. And I only later realised that the reason I applied to do law should have given me a clue about what I really should have done because I had seen the movie And Justice For All, which was a legal movie with um, Al Pacino, and I loved it and had kept that in my head all until I got to about second year law and I thought, it's not like this at all. Mm. And I realised, oh, what I really wanted to do was write the screenplay for And Justice For All, not work mm. in law. <laughs> so you never considered kind of becoming a lawyer or at no point in your degree did you see yourself practicing I I did as I was doing the degree but what happened was I got published at the end of when I was 20 so around the end of second year uni and it was an accident I got published by fluke and that happened early on when I was 20 and I kept freelancing as a result of that and so by the time I finished my law degree I had a full-time writing career already as a freelancer and got offered stuff pretty soon afterwards so I didn't really have to consider law yeah you Mm. said that it was a fluke getting published is there a story there yeah no there is um I had been overseas in New York with a group of girlfriends and when I came back I had jet lag and I was flicking through the age newspaper and there was a story by a comedian about Australia from her perspective she was American and she was making all these jokes about Australia and I thought I could do that in reverse I'd just been to America and had funny things to say and I wrote it just for myself and showed a friend who was with me on that trip and she wanted to be a journalist and she said I think you should send it off to the age and because this was such back in the day I on my electric typewriter I (laughs) typed it out sent it by mail and I got a call a few days later from Jim Shembury, who was a very well-known entertainment edit- editor there. And he said, how do you look for your close-up? Come on in. Because he decided to run a photo of me the same way the early article had appeared. 
So suddenly I had this full page article in the age with half a page was my head and it really established me as a writer. And what I realized, which is such a good lesson, I think, for young people, when I set my article in, no one asked me how old I was. Mm. No one asked me what my experience was. I had written an article in its entirety and they either liked it or they didn't. Mm. And I realise that even now, like when I tried to get an agent for this book and when my book goes out, no one knows how old I am. I'm on the other end of the spectrum now. But writing is an escape from that kind of judgment that can help that can happen in other types of careers. Mm. It reminds me of J.K. Rowling. She said that she put the K in there so that no one would know her gender, so that boys, little boys, would be still encouraged to buy the Harry Potter books. It's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. That depending on like the demographics of different authors it does make a difference unfortunately well I don't know if I would have been judged but it was more that I wouldn't have felt that I was able to do that I didn't have the qualifications I felt but no one knew as soon as I wrote an article it was just judged on Mm. that Mm. I mean so going on from there you have this fluke happen. What what then makes it into a career? Because sometimes people can have a fluke and move on to another industry or continue their life as usual. Did you know at that time, oh, okay, there's something here? Or is it something you came back to later? No, I think as soon as I had it published, there was the thrill of that. And there was this realization all at once, I could do this. So there was a confidence shift. And then I started trying to do it. I started writing articles and sending them off. And in the first year, it was hard. I didn't get everything published. But by the second year, I started getting assignments for Rolling Stone and the Sydney Morning Herald and really established places. And I had that feeling you have when you realize that you're doing the exact right thing that you've always wanted to do. I'd always been a good writer at school But often when I sat down to write, I would feel this thrill, this adrenaline pumping through me, and I couldn't imagine feeling that with any other thing. And I still feel that. That magic has never been lost for me. That's what I love to hear when guests say that on the podcast. You could see the passion so many years later, and I think finding that is so rare and so special how lucky that you happen to do that and find that you love it so much i think your passion can grow too so not everyone feels their passion right away let's face it and a lot of journalists might start out writing about one thing that's not their interest and then they get passion later on but i think if you do find your passion it feels incredibly lucky Mm. so as you have just kind of i guess briefly touched on You have done a lot of freelance work for publications, as you said, such as The Rolling Stone, Elle magazine, Harper's Bazaar. Can you maybe let our listeners in on how you actually first got published? So you did kind of briefly say, you know, you you send your work in, but how does that actually play out? Well, you find out who the editor is that runs the particular section. You look at what they publish. So you keep to the word count and the tone. And you write something that's topical. So there's no point writing about something that happened last week because their staff writers will be all over it. Mm. I always tell young people especially, think about what is your field of expertise and write about that. So your field of expertise might be what life is like on a school campus at the moment. Mm. And there's no way that a staff writer at a newspaper can compete with that because you've got this insider knowledge. 
and then you keep writing and send it in. If you've got a sympathetic editor, they might let you know where you went wrong and how you could go about it in the future. But it is just really practice and believing in yourself. I think the hardest thing is when you don't believe in yourself and you get discouraged. Mm. So how does that look from a compensation perspective because obviously you know you're writing a piece for a publication but you're a freelance uh, writer so how does that look well I wasn't a freelance writer for uh, many years during my career I've worked on staff at several magazines and um, overseas but it is a tricky business as a freelancer the paper word hasn't changed that much since the 1980s and in fact probably in some cases was a bit more than per word. So it's tricky. I think like with any career where you're a freelancer, you have to try and hustle a bit and leverage your information, maybe sell something in different ways to various publications. It probably suited me for a long time too while I was raising my family. Mm. So do you think if you started today, you would be able to submit those pieces as easily or would have would it have been just a lot more competition I think you could submit them today I think there's even more outlets in a way because there's so much online stuff and there is different programs I'm at the moment mentoring for the Melbourne Fashion Festival and we've got young people submitting their portfolios to us there's four writers including me Melissa Singer Jane Rocker and Claire Press And those people will have a chance to be published in magazines and also be mentored by us during the festival. Mm. So I think there's lots of opportunities that you probably can find out more online. And in fact, back in the day when I did it before the internet, it was sometimes quite hard to find out who looked after a section and how to get through them. Because you'd have to flick through the newspaper and see who wrote it, right? Yes, although to be fair, that was also the day where you could call them on a landline and they would pick up. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, there's ancient, no phone numbers these days. Ancient times. Yeah. In terms of maybe people who were, would be listening and wanting any tips on getting published themselves, I guess that kind of goes off what you just said, but are there any actionable tips of what to do today to get published tomorrow? Well, apart from what I said, you could also self-publish. So you could start something on Substack or Medium or start a blog and get your word out there that way. I think the main thing is you actually have to have determination and believe in yourself because the way to not get published is to give up Mm. or to think you're entitled to be published too. I think you really have to understand the market you're going for and try hard and be humble and listen to people who tell you how you can improve. Mm. Yeah. I read in a book recently that Jerry Seinfeld he's obviously a comedian he said that every day he would write one joke and it's like exactly as you're saying you need to train yourself as well like every piece that you write you have to write terrible pieces in order to write great pieces so I think that's something that I think about also yes because even if you don't have somebody else looking at your work and you must feel this with even doing a podcast you know when you're doing well you can feel it when you're improving you feel when work becomes more fluent. And it's the same with any career, I think. Mm. Something I like that you said is a tip for people who might want to be journalists is write about a specific topic that maybe the team can't write about, like life on campus. Did you find yourself writing about a specific topic or industry? Yeah, I did. So I was a movie fanatic 
when I was at uni, I would often, not often, but I would sometimes skip classes and go and see a double feature at Chadstone. Um, and I really knew a lot about that world too. I would cut out clips of actors and it was just a field I felt comfortable in. And so very early on, I started writing about films and what they had in common with each other. And through that, a movie company invited me to see their press screenings. So that helped. And eventually I got asked to interview actors. And it was really an area I felt comfortable in for a long, long time because I knew all the nuances of it. I had studied screenwriting and playwriting in Los Angeles and I briefly worked at a film studio as well. So when I went on a set, I knew what the producer did. I knew what the director mm. did. I knew what all the terminology meant and it, ma it made it much easier to interview people. How did that look like, like even with the first actor or actress that you interviewed, how did that happen? So the first actor I interviewed was Ben Mendelsohn and that was because we were related through marriage. I asked him if I could interview him. He said yes, and I sent that off to Rolling Stone. They didn't publish it, but they gave me more assignments. The first assignment I got to interview an actor was Jason Bateman, and I was probably only a couple of years older than him and so nervous. I mean, when I would go to a hotel to interview someone, they always thought I was a groupie, and I had to really <laughs> prove myself to get in. And with him, I remember while I was shaking, I had notes written down and I kept looking down at my notes. And after that interview, I thought that was a terrible way to interview someone. I'm never going to do that again. Because you would know this, that you need to have a conversation with somebody. If you're doing something that seems artificial, you can't have a conversation. So I, I kept learning. But I think often I got placed in those situations because I was young. I was the age more or less of the people I was interviewing and it made them more comfortable too. How did they treat you? Usually well. A lot of them did let down their guard with me and later on I learned to be really careful with that where I started realising what a responsibility it was to write about somebody, especially if they're comfortable and they let everything out. I don't know that I learned that straight away, but I always felt like it was such an illusion buster though, because, you know, a few years ago, I'd had some of these people on posters on my wall and then suddenly I was interviewing them and they were really people. A lot of the time the actors might've been shorter than me or they were, yeah, they're just regular, all of them were regular people, very beautiful often, but still regular people nevertheless and so I just learned to get rid of that sort of mm. smoke and mirrors that you have about Hollywood. My best party trick is that if you name five actors of the 1990s I reckon I've interviewed at least three or four of them in that, wow. in that group. <laughs> Do you remember what exactly you interviewed Jason Bateman about? He was in the Hogan family I believe it was a tv show <laughs> And it was for a kid's magazine. It was for Studio Bambini. So it was for a kid's skewed magazine. Who knows what questions I asked. That is really going back too long. <laughs> you just mentioned that sometimes it would kind of blur the lines between the interview and maybe parts of their private life. I'm just interested to hear how you navigated through that. Well, generally speaking, I really hate asking people about their private life. It feels very embarrassing and you realize in an interview you actually can ask 
people almost anything and they feel compelled to answer not always but as a rule and I was often mortified to have to ask that and I remember once being asked to interview Liv Tyler after she got divorced and the editor specifically said to me ask her about her divorce and this is how I asked it I said uh, Liv, I know I meant to ask you about your divorce, but you probably don't want to talk about it. So let's move on. <laughs> like I literally answered the question for her badly and then had to scramble when I didn't have it. So I found it hard. Sometimes I've actually told people that I won't be writing that. So once I interviewed a celebrity and she was getting divorced and she started bad mouthing her ex-husband and I said to her, I'm not going to write that. So you can stop now because one day you want to have a relationship with him and I just don't think that's news. I think that's how you feel now. I guess that's not very journalistic in some ways, but I also figure I'm not breaking Watergate. I want to try and find out the human story. What I do want to have tr a truth of is the truth of who somebody is. I don't want the scandal. I don't want the headlines. I don't want the clickbait. I want to find out what sort of person they are and that is what I want truthful. I don't need to rely, I think I'm a better writer than that, to have to rely on finding out the worst thing about them or the most sensational thing about them and then exploiting that. Do you think that maybe makes it a slower climb to success when you're not capitalising on those clickbait articles where you can get a lot of work doing a lot of that gossip stuff and sticking to human-to-human -human conversations? I don't think so because I have faith in my writing. So I think people would rather read a well-written story and learn something that touches them or moves them or startles them than writing something that's not very well-written that's all headline. Yeah. I think you get more work. Rochelle, do you maybe have a story or funny moment from interviewing someone that you would like to share with our audience? I have a related story where I was asked to interview Joaquin Phoenix and he wasn't the way he is now. He was, I think he might have been doing To Die For, the movie. So he wasn't a massive movie star yet. And his publicist wanted me to relax with him and get to know him. So he said, why don't you guys go to a movie together first? And I was like, I'm not going to a movie with an actor. I could just come and do the interview. <laughs> and that is a big regret. I could have said I went to the movies with Joaquin Phoenix. But that's what happens when you're young. You make bad decisions. Did you end up interviewing him? I did. He was fantastic. He was, he didn't really need to relax because he was just lovely and thoughtful. And sometimes I think you, you feel like you're being given a script by an actor. They know what they want to say and they say it. And you can understand why they do that too. But I didn't feel like he was maybe protective enough of him, himself. I felt very protective of him because he was so open and smart and had a really clear intellect. He was beautiful. What about feeling intimidated? What did you do back then to kind of calm yourself down? Because you said, obviously, the first interview, really nervous. How did that progress into feeling more comfortable with yourself as the journalist? Yeah, it's such a good question because at the beginning I was really nervous and I think I just used to tell myself, you are not going to get nervous. There's nothing to be nervous about. I would just really talk to myself before and it was a real fake it till you make it attitude. I thought if I don't look nervous, they won't know I'm nervous. And soon 
That is how you can develop a lack of nerves, by talking yourself into the opposite. Mm. Any other tips that you have for feeling really nervous before public speaking or interviewing? I think when I speak, because I actually really enjoy speaking in public now, and maybe I always did a little bit, (laughs) but I really think about the message that I'm trying to get across. So instead of worrying about what how I'm going to deliver everything and what I'm going to say. I just think about what do I, what is really important to me to get across in this moment and who do I want to speak to? And I find that really helpful because people don't actually mind and won't remember if you mm. lose your train of thought a little bit or if your words aren't perfect, but they will notice more if you're stiff and uncomfortable. Mm. So if you can try and shake that off and just speak as you would normally it's it comes with practice I think Mm. just one last kind of in the celebrity realm are you please able to tell us about interviewing Tom Cruise for Mission Impossible where we're fans so we'd like (laughs) to just hear about that experience I'm a fan too I always defend Tom Cruise because he's actually a lovely human being and there was a time when people made fun of him and he was on the wrong side of the celebrity game for a short while. Generally, he's been very famous and very popular. But it was interesting. I had interviewed his then wife, Nicole Kidman, a lot. So I knew his team and I knew his sister who was running his publicity at that time. The same week I interviewed him, I interviewed Charlie Sheen and Elle McPherson. And I've interviewed Elle a few times. I love her too. But their management or their publicists called me up beforehand and said with Charlie don't ask about this and this Elle didn't want to talk about her personal life so there were all there was a few restrictions about interviewing them and I remember Tom's sister called me up before the interview and she ran his publicity and I thought oh what's she gonna ask what's she gonna say that I can't ask and I said you know everything okay and she said yeah I just rang to say have a great time and I have noticed often the bigger the star, the less control they sometimes need. Not always, but we did it on the phone and I was told I only had 10 minutes, which is often standard with a celebrity. He was on set and he had a tiny break and he was so excited when we were speaking and he was doing his best Aussie accent and he was (sighs) telling me lots of stories. And um, about 10 minutes in, I said, look, Tom, I think you've really got to go. He's like, nah, don't worry, let's keep going. <laughs> I think we spoke for about half an hour. He was really generous with his time. He invited me to the premiere of, I can't remember which movie, afterwards. And I met his family. I met his sister, his nephew, his mother at the time. I just thought he was a really lovely professional person to deal with. Mm. One of the things about interviewing celebrities, I think, is it's such a strange area. You're often putting someone on the cover of a magazine and they're riding high at this point in time. You're putting them on a pedestal. And then invariably from that pedestal, they have to fall. And I always felt sorry for interviewing celebrities because it was clear there was a rise to the top and everyone who isn't at the top is scrambling to get there. But you as a journalist realize that at one point, they, even if they're at the top, they might not keep that position or they'll fall. And sometimes when they fall, people turn against them. And I think it's that is a really hard thing about celebrity to be dragged down like that. But also to 
not live a normal life. I remember I interviewed Matthew McConaughey the week he became famous. So A Time to Kill came out and from one day to the next, he was an unknown who was a movie star and he was on four magazine covers, including Vanity Fair and these massive magazines in America. And I interviewed him again a few years later after that. And he said that he had gone that week from being the observer to being the observed. Mm -hmm. And I've never forgotten that, how now he can't go back to being the observer again that easily. And as an actor or as any creative person, you really need to be an observer. That's where you're getting your material from Mm -hmm. to, to inform your work. So I just think fame is such a tricky thing. I feel that for everyone in the public eye. There's a real shadow side to it. Mm, It's interesting. You got such an insight into that. Well, I could see also how people treated famous people. You know, there'd be a famous celebrity at a table and there'd be a whole entourage of people trying to cater to them. And through that process, because they were asked for whatever they wanted, some of them, I think, lose their way as well. And I remember being so struck when I interviewed Matt Damon. I went to his hotel room and he, he asked me where my accent was from and he offered me something to drink and eat from the minibar. I thought, how kind, he's incredible. He's one of the nicest people I've met. And then I realized, hang on, that is normal behavior. Yeah. Like to be asked to be curious about someone, to offer them a glass of water, that's normal. But celebrities are often not asked to be normal and that's tricky for them it's tricky for the way we view people in our society i think that's changed a lot fame has changed a little bit with social media because now a lot of people have access to being a public figure and i don't know if that's better or worse but i love that example like they do a basic human thing and you're like oh my god that's so nice and it's wait, no, they're just offering me a glass of water. Why am I putting them on such a pedestal? And not to take away from Matt Damon, because he's genuinely (laughs) incredibly nice. Throughout your career, you've also written about fashion. What actually drew you to fashion specifically? Because obviously with celebrities, you had kind of this passion and you just naturally consumed that content. What was it about fashion that you were drawn to? Well, the truth is, What drew me to fashion was Kelly Hush, who was running a column in the Sydney Morning Herald and asked me to write a fashion column. I think I'd written a bit of fashion for Elle, but it was not my field of expertise. I loved the aesthetics of fashion, but even today, I don't know that I would say that I'm somebody who really knows the ins and outs of fashion. And that's true of some other areas I've written about too. I've written, I spent many years writing about interiors as well and design. But what I do try to do is get to the story behind it. So I don't write stories where I'm assessing fashion in any way, but I will write. I remember interviewing the sisters behind Ginger and Smart and finding out their incredible story and their family history and how they would create their fashion and what went into it and their inspirations. And that's, I think, actually you have an advantage when you approach things from a non-fashion area or a non-design area because you go into it completely differently than some of your peers might Mm. and I always just look for the human story. Sounds very familiar to us. I remember we had a conversation maybe a month into the podcast saying it's actually not the business or career story on its own. 
there there's always a person behind it yeah. and everyone has a story to tell and it's so fascinating to hear other people's stories because you don't even have to have the most incredible career or life and have all these adventures you on your own with your personality have something that someone can take away and learn from absolutely and i think that is a key to writers journalists podcasters you're interested in the story and you love people i think you can't possibly do this job without liking to speak to people and people are fascinating if you dig deeply and i do this at dinner parties too i've got a motto no small talk only big talk and sometimes i have to apologize i'll ask something and i'll say sorry i'm a journalist is that too personal or i'll say you don't have to answer this i just really want to know and it always serves me well obviously i don't want to be invasive and i don't try to put somebody on the spot but i do want to ask questions that mean something i want to walk away from an encounter with somebody and feel like I've learned something, feel like I'm inspired, feel like I understand the world a tiny little bit more than I did mm. a half an hour before. Mm. It's exactly why we're doing this podcast, to really get deeper. And I yeah. think Gull and I are similar. We really like having deep, interesting conversations with people rather than just that surface level, how are you going? Yeah, it's also like with guests, you can just Google their story, you know? For us, it's about really finding what makes them who they are as a career or business person. Well, I've even started to think about that in terms of people's legacies. Like when I did interview my mother, I think often you'll go to a funeral and hear a eulogy and you'll hear what the person did, where they went to school and what job they achieved and did they marry or have children. And I think, is that really as important as who they were? I want to mm. hear who they were mm. and what made them tick and what left their impact on the world. It wasn't where they went to school. Yeah. It makes me think of the quote by Maya Angelou, which is, no one will remember what you did, no one will remember what you said, but people will remember how you made them feel. And that speaks exactly to what you've just said. Yeah, that's a beautiful quote. Yeah. It also reminds me of, we had a guest on the podcast that said, you know, there's all these people, there might be in old age homes or kind of nearing the end of their life and they have all these stories that will never be told it's like all these untold personal stories that you know they don't think oh i should be interviewed because they, they're like oh i just lived a regular ordinary life but everyone has something so incredible to say but that's what i learned by interviewing my mother and writing it down and honestly she didn't have to go through the holocaust to have an incredible mm. story Every young person who listens to this, and by young I mean not the older person in the old age home, should sit down with the people in their life, no matter how old those people are, and find out their stories. And don't do that as a chore, but do it as a, a moment of beauty. Do it in a way that is sustainable and you can handle it. But it is such an act of kindness, and it really does matter to get legacy down and to... It is something you give future generations. I really believe that. Don't yeah. think that somebody's life is ordinary because even when I told you that I had a horse and cart deliver milk bottles to my front door, your eyebrows raised and you thought that was interesting. So even me describing my childhood is interesting, I think. Just going back to, I guess, briefly speaking about you having written about fashion, 
Do you think that fashion publications in some ways contribute to the overconsumption of products? I don't know about overconsumption. Certainly one of the chores of magazines is to sell product and that's through their editorials, that's through their ads. If they weren't able to do that through their ads, they would fold. But I also think that magazines are really careful these days about presenting the other side, about doing articles on sustainability. My friend Claire Press, who I mentioned before, was Vogue's, Vogue magazine's first sustainability editor. And I think actually what they do in a way, I was thinking about this the other day, is that they, in a way, they, you could argue they promote the reverse because a fashion magazine often isn't highlighting fast fashion. They're highlighting often unattainable, quite expensive investment mm -hmm. pieces. And you are much better off buying an investment piece and keeping it in your wardrobe for 40 years than you are buying a ton of small things that cost nothing and then and having them end up in landfills. So maybe they make us purchase more thoughtfully. Mm. I think you could argue either. Mm. Yeah, depends what you're reading. Yeah. And depends how, even if you're reading something, you're not brainwashed. You yeah. still have a brain <laughs> to absorb that and say, well, this was a light little skip down fashion lane that I loved and I was inspired by, but now I'm going to apply it to my own wardrobe. Mm. Yeah. I, I think that you can't put the onus on magazines. You have to put it on yourself, the audience. Mm. I also often think about the interplay between the rapid level of consumption that we get online versus print magazine, which is still massive. And like, yes, they still have an objective to showcase like things that are trending or... I don't know, certain pieces or highlight certain artists, but it's more considered than just those fast flash ads that you're getting online. For sure. And I, I think that beautiful fashion photography, and I've worked with some gorgeous fashion photographers in this country. I think of Carlotta Moy and Marnie Haddad, who I know both well, just make work wonderful and and make you really appreciate the artistry of fashion photography mm. so there's something to be said for that value too mm. maybe you look at it with a more intricate eye because you're in that world i think so i really do appreciate a great photo and a great model and beautiful art direction and the way it's so carefully put together mm. so how did the idea for a brilliant life first come about? Well, I always knew that I had a story to write with my mother's story, but again, I kept putting it off and not knowing, couldn't find a way into it. How do I approach this? Do I write it as short stories? Do I write it just as my mother's story? I ended up realizing that whenever I had written stories about my mother for newspapers and magazines that I was really happy with, it had some of me in it. So I knew that was a way in, not just to tell her story, but to tell mine as well. But there was a catalyst for when I actually, the day I started writing it, and it was, it was during lockdown, lockdown number six in Melbourne. So the atmosphere was incredibly bleak everywhere. And I would go for walks with my girlfriend, Diana. She was my neighbor and we were in the kilometre radius. And she herself had faced some hard news in her life and so we were talking about really serious matters all the time and she often wanted to hear the story about my mother and how she had really come out of a very dark spot and gone on to really live this idea that 
no matter how much darkness pervades your life, you have to really believe in the light and it will be there on the other side. And we were talking about it and, and I was also complaining to her about how all the magazines I was writing for were closing during the pandemic or hibernating. So there was just no work around. It had dried up. And while I was complaining about that, I said, but I also do want to write my mother's story. And she stopped literally on the pavement and looked at me and said, well, isn't that what your legacy should be? And that word legacy, I don't know, it hit me. It was such a powerful word because it made me think at once of both my legacy and my mother's. And in terms of my own legacy, I thought, what do I want my legacy to be? Do I want it to be that I've interviewed Keanu Reeves six times? Like I love Keanu, but I don't want that to be just my legacy. I want my legacy to mean something and be something deeper and to exist after I'm gone. And then I thought even more importantly about my mother's legacy. Did she endure all of this and talk about her experiences for it to then go into some archive of videos in a museum and not often be seen? I just didn't want that either. So that word was so powerful. It stayed in my head until the next morning. And the next morning I said, this is it. I Previously, I tried to plan the book. I couldn't do it. I thought, I'm doing this without any plan. Sat down at 8.30, started writing. I said, I'm not moving from this desk until I'm done. I was there till midnight that night. I repeated every day, seven days a week, maybe a Saturday night off for six weeks until I had my first draft. Wow. That's when you know you love writing. Well, or that you... I was scared, I guess, that if I stopped the whole project would collapse so I wanted to not stop because I know myself I'm easily discouraged sometimes and I can lose I just thought I'm, I'm going to see this through to the end and whatever comes out if it's good or it's bad I'm going there and there were times when I, I thought that what I had was magical a bit not because of my writing necessarily but because my mother's story was so incredible and I could honestly feel the magic in every word through her mm. and there was something strange that was happening when I was writing I've never written like that I'm not so focused I get up a million times I make a coffee I do something else I walk around the block and this time I just I was writing with a fury and a passion mm. that if you believe in this stuff I really felt was like my mother's hand beneath mm. me that's really special what are your hopes for the book I just want people to know her. I don't see it in terms of a personal thing as much. Like what happens to me as an author if it sells X amount? I really, that's not my aim here. My aim is that people read her story, but that they learn from her story because she really had a template by which to live. She really, I wrote it for people who have experienced loss or trauma and need a way out. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean you have to go through something as brutal as the Holocaust by any stretch. It was, her lessons are of positivity and of looking forward and of really believing in your heart that of what's possible. I tell a story in the book where she wrote me these very effusive birthday cards every year long birthday cards that were always so beautiful and in one of them I was going through a bit of a down spot and she wrote don't give up hope and then she wrote in capital letters the happiness is near 
And, you know, you read it on the page, you think, what does that mean in all caps? Mm. And I didn't think about it then much. And after she died, I reread that letter. And I came to understand that what she meant by that is the happiness is near because the happiness is always near. You might not see it, but you have to believe in it. You might have to grab it. It might not fall on you, but it's there. And if you believe in it, it's that much closer to it happening. Mm. And her lessons of humanity were, so, you know, were important then and are so important now. Not to see people in groups, not to see people as them versus us and others. It is really about learning about people on a human level, remembering that and never forgetting your own humanity too. Mm. Rochelle, in an interview, you've previously stated that writing is partly about talent, but it's just as much about persistence, dedication and resilience. Can you please elaborate on this? Yes, I mean, with exceptions, obviously there are people who are wildly talented and you can't imagine them necessarily needing discipline. But in general, as a journalist, there is some talent involved, but more so much of it can be learnt. And what is much more important is that you are reaching your deadlines when your editor says, I want a thousand words on May the 1st. That's what they're getting at that time. You have to be really focused. And I think that's true in any career. You've got to be reliable. So talent in writing to some extent can be learned. Certainly technique can be learned. But talent on its own without the discipline of it, I can't imagine it gets you too far. Hmm. And is there an excerpt or maybe a sentence or quote that another journalist has said in the past that has always kind of stayed with you? Only one because I'm really bad at remembering <laughs> quotes. But I, do, I did remember when my mother passed away, I was really looking for words of comfort. And not long afterwards, Stephen Colbert, the talk show host, lost his mother. And he said something in his eulogy on TV, which was, she lived till the age of 90, I'm going to say 92, it might be 91. So I might not get this quote right. But she was obviously old and oftentimes when you mourn somebody old you feel really a bit guilty because other people are saying oh they had great innings and you don't know how to counter that and he said something so perfect he said i know it may sound greedy to want more time with a person who has lived so long but the fact that my mother was 92 does not diminish it only magnifies the enormity of the room whose door has now quietly shut and I thought about that. So I think about that all the time. And it's often the words of condolence I write to somebody else when they've lost an aged parent, because there's a sense that actually you've lost more in a way. That person has filled up the room for longer. And so they leave a bigger hole. I just think it reminds me of how words can be so you know, poignant and so potent. They can really leave their mark. And that's also why I wanted to write my book when I, I thought maybe if I write about my loss and grief and love, it'll help somebody else that is going through that as well. Mm. Well, Rochelle, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. We, I can tell by how Gull was looking at you that she enjoyed <laughs> this chat as much as I did. We, yeah, we really appreciate your time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And it is great to pass on a bit of knowledge forward. So thank you. 
And for our listeners that may want to read Rochelle's book, A Brilliant Life, it is out on November 1st in Australia and later in the UK and the US. But Rochelle, if our listeners maybe want to find you online, where should they look? My website will be finished any second. <laughs> so they can find it there. And I'm also on Instagram, which is at Rochelle UNR. I will also add that my book is available on audio and the actress Rachel Griffiths will be reading it. That's so exciting. Well, again, Rochelle, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. For our listeners, of course, if you want to see some snippets from this episode, jump on our socials at Clever Women Co, where you can find a bit more of the behind the scenes and some video snippets of this episode. But for now, we'll see you in our next episode. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to a Clever Media production. Clever Media acknowledges the traditional owners of the land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. We pay our deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging. Liked this episode? Let us know about it. And don't worry, we have plenty more. So hit that subscribe button and listen wherever you get your podcasts. But want to take it that little bit further from your ears to your eyes? Then go find us as Clever Women Co. on TikTok and Instagram for that extra clever content we know you'll love. Catch you next time.